A body that does not follow its head is a very, very sick body. That's the cornerstone. Wherever we do not look and live like Jesus Christ, we are a very, very sick body. I don't care if you've got 300,000 people in your church. It's not about any of those things. It's obedience to the head. We've lost him. Fortunately, he hasn't lost us. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Welcome to the CPT Podcast. I'm Zach Wagner. Today, we are continuing our conversation with Diane Langberg, who is a therapist and the author of Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the first half of our conversation, it's the episode immediately previous to this one, and we will pick up where we left off last time. You make the connection in the book between um, purity, seeking purity, and deception. Uh, And I found that to be a a really interesting point. And I'd like to hear you. You you were just talking about how in in Christendom we think the problem is is out there. So we, we want to, in a sense, purify ourselves against that out there. But if the problem is inside and we're deceived, how does deception and purity, that desire for purity, explore with us a little bit that connection and, and help us to understand kind of the dynamic that takes place in the human heart in that connection between those two things? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that Jesus Christ is the only one who was pure. And he went out. He didn't stay in. He didn't hide here, and he didn't hide in a system. He didn't shut the door of the system so the bad people couldn't get in. He said the bad people were in the system and outside the system. <laughs> you know, So I think we really have, a, have to you know, by God's grace, come to a really radical mindset change in terms of what he did and how utterly different it is from what we're doing in his name. But I I also think we have to, and this certainly takes a lot of prayer and thinking and reading and study, but we use words to make ourselves okay. You know, so... I may be uh, doing something financially wrong. I may be doing something immoral. Uh, I may be doing what, you know, hurting people who are the least of these, but I brought this much money into the church and I, we soothe ourselves with things that have a spiritual tone to them, but are not like Christ. Can I um, follow up on that with something, and this is something I've been thinking about um, for a project that I'm working on, but what you're saying about Jesus as the only pure human being, and um, he didn't kind of, for that reason, become reclusive and just say, well, I need to stay in my house and maintain this purity. Um, that almost seems a little silly to think about Jesus doing that. Yes, yes. Um, 
But, uh, you know, purity language, and this is a theme that comes up in, in your book, um, is often in the church uh, closely associated with, with sexuality. Yes. Um, and it certainly includes that. Um, but I, yeah, I think I would argue it, it's not, it's not by any means limited to that. Um, but your also your discussion about the out there in here. Um, I think Christians have, uh, excelled at, um, I guess to, borrow from something else Jesus said, excelled at pointing out the speck in the culture's eye relative to sexuality um, while ignoring um, some of the logs in our own eyes. And um, I think that's something that's become painfully um, apparent recently. I mean, it's in just even the past couple of years is these these um, scandals that keep coming to light, often involving pastors and Christian leaders of um, a sexual nature. Um, who teach I purity. Would, who teach, yes. Who, who, who would presumably from the pulpit um, be kind of proclaiming this sexual purity um, uh, teaching and, um, you know, and we don't want to like dismiss uh, you know, sexual forms of purity and holiness by any means. Uh, but like, I wonder if you could talk a bit more on this specifically on sexuality. Um, what's, and, and you talk about starting in here. Um, it, it seems to me that the church needs to kind of turn around and, and do some soul searching, um, particularly as it relates to, to sexuality and I also don't want to paint with broad brushstrokes broad brush that just because some pastors are, you know, hiding these egregious um, sexual sins that all Christians or all pastors or something like that. I, I don't want to do that. But um, certainly churches should not be a place where we need to worry about the sexual abuse of, of women and children. Um, well, churches uh, should be a place where we can safely graze. That, that's what they're supposed to be. Yes. So certainly with those issues, they're not. I've been very struck over the years by all the conversations about immorality and sexual purity and some forms of that that are rather extreme or whatever. But we don't talk about pornography. Mm. And the percentage of, of men and women, for that matter, who are looking at pornography today is huge. And it's not like that's not happening in the church. So we have taught purity to 18-year-olds, you know, in ways that are different than have ever been done before, I think, in terms of some of the things that are said. But we don't talk about pornography. We don't talk about what you're doing in your head, even if you don't pick up a picture to help you. You know, we don't talk about the internal world, which is what God sees. But you can't do this. I'm not suggesting we change that part. <laughs> but that's just skimming the surface. Just skimming the surface. You know, what does purity in my life, sexually across the board, look like in God's eyes? It's not just about, you know, not having a relationship with somebody who's not my spouse. It even... You know, it can be impure in marriage when you think about things like battering and 
various forms of power abused in a marriage. They're married. They're having sex. We say that's fine. But the way the use of power and degradation and negativity in things, it's not fine. It looks nothing like God. Certainly not what he intended. So I think that we've become very concrete in a way that lets a lot of us off the hook. But doesn't necessarily even in extreme instances protect because this kind of under the surface um, stuff continues to fester. Well, yes, because people aren't truly pure here. Yes. So that has to go sideways somehow. Yes. So part of what happens is not only is there self-deception, we're deceiving other people who say we're pure and they don't have a clue. And if you sit in a psychologist's chair, you find out about this, the backstories. You know? <laughs> so they look a certain way externally, but that's not who they are. One of the dynamics that, that I've certainly seen in, in um, conversations with pastors in my own pastoral ministry is the fear of your inner self actually being being known because, yes. you know, many pastors, we are self-deceived, but we also have a, 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 a knowledge of ourselves in, in a certain way that we can, we understand ways in which our sin plays out internally, but we can be very much tempted to keep that inside because if we let it out, then we might lose our ministry position. If people really knew who I was, they might not let me be a pastor anymore. And and then that has its ways of playing out in various ways. Have, have you seen that in your counseling of pastors? How has that contributed? How does that contribute to, to power dynamics in a pastor's life? If there's a an internal uh, sin going on, but they're afraid to bring it out in the open, what kind of patterns does that create? Well, unfortunately, once we start doing that, and it's happening a great deal, I think, uh, our need for deception increases. Mm. Because, number one, we have to deceive other people that these things aren't in me or aren't happening in my life. And then I feel messed up about that deception, and I don't know what to do, and I don't know what to say, or you know, there's nothing I can do. So then I have to find ways to deceive myself to make it okay that I'm doing that. Not only that I'm doing whatever I'm hiding, but now that I'm okay with my deception about what I'm hiding. It grows and it grows and it grows. How have you seen pastors break that cycle? What, what's the, if, if one of our listeners is, this is, they're feeling the conviction of the spirit and they know that they're in a pattern of deception, what kind of, of encouragement would you give to someone who is in that situation? Uh, not to ignore it. You know, you've got, you've got something cancerous in you. If you ignore it, it will grow and it will do great damage. Uh, and it can kill. Um, I would encourage them to seek help. I think also we have to go back to seminaries and things. I've been doing a series of talks for several groups of pastors and Anglican priests and things like that on the book. And I added something that isn't really in the book, at least not as overtly. And and it's a whole talk on examining yourself. 
I don't think we're taught to do that. You know, and most most pastors that I know, you know, you go to seminary, you're taught how to you, you learn the languages, you learn the history of Christianity, you learn how to preach, they tell you how to do it better, all those things. They don't tell you how to examine yourself and how that's probably the critical foundational thing. Uh, and you're, you're going to rot yourself if you don't learn that. And that, that has to be something we're willing to do. And since we're all deceptive creatures, at least, uh, we need to do that with somebody who's not invested in us being a pastor, whose world isn't going to fall down if we decide we shouldn't be. Um, and there's, so there are so many ways that people, I mean, I, I've known through the years of pastors groups and they work together to try and do that. Um, and everybody's promised to be honest and all of those things. And 10 years later, one of the guys went to another city and killed himself because he was, soliciting sex on the street corners in another city with men. So he would go to the group and he would do that. And you think about what that does to our ability to deceive others and ourselves. I mean, we are increasing our capacity to deceive. So yes, groups are great, but everybody's not always truthful. <laughs> of course, they're not always truthful with a therapist either. <laughs> You know, our, our capacity is huge, but I do think that those things need to be taught and put on the table as a real, live, central, important thing. There will always be people who don't do that. Yeah. And it's striking to, it, one, just what you're saying, the longer you kind of s stay in a pattern of deception, the, the better you get at deceiving yourself and others. That's, um, that's uh, again, very sobering. It's also, you, you've just described our enemy. Yes. Who got, who's so good at it that he appears as an angel of light. I mean, that's not a bad phrase for a pastor, an angel of light. Yes. Yeah. The other thing that I'm noticing is that um, this is also this question of like, if you're if you're a pastor or a ministry leader or someone training for pastoral ministry and you 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 notice or if you're honest and you feel conviction about these darknesses in you, I suppose um, this rot I, I, it, it is a term that that you've used over and over. Um, but particularly if you're in a pastor and it, get, it comes back to what we were saying about the way power is consolidated in one person. Um. All of this, like self-examination and the system. I mean, I can't even imagine like the 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 pressure. I, I I think there was an anecdote in your in your book about a pastor who um kind of just got increasingly bold in his uh pursuit of sexual sin until the elders came and and told him that he he needed to um step away. And um I'm meandering a bit, but I guess my point is if you're a pastor in that place and the, the system and the church has invested all of this power in you, and like you say, if you step away, the wheels are going to come off, or at least you feel like the wheels are going to come off, and all of these, the spiritual lives of these people are going to be in the balance, that's a tough spot to be where you feel like you need to either maintain the system for the spiritual integrity of others or whatever the case may be, or maintain your kind of system of self-deception on the side. I, yes. I, I think a lot of people 
feel crushed under the weight of those two things. Yes. Um, one, of the things that they, one of the things that they do not see is that many times the best thing that can happen to human beings is for the wheels to come off. Because the system that rides on the wheels is not God himself. He will not move. He will not change. And he can redeem anything. It won't look like what we think it should. It certainly isn't going to look like what the congregation's comfortable with or with a familiar or whatever. But but we protect things and tell ourselves we have to do that because it's going to hurt other people, which it will. But that's often the most redemptive thing that can happen. Yeah. Do you feel it would be helpful for churches to normalize pastors just needing to take time to step away from ministry responsibilities? Um, I, I certainly don't want to like normalize pastors having allowance to indulge in sin or something like that. But like, I, 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 I'm just thinking as we're talking, there's not a lot of space for, you talked about the pastor pastor being a very isolated position or a vocation oftentimes. And there's not space. I mean, people get sabbaticals, but those are often used for, for study and study. research and different kinds of things and not, not soul renewal or, or tearing out rot or, you know, um, surgery on something cancerous in our souls. Um, yeah. What could that, what, what could that look like? Do you have any, do you have any ideas for what, how we can structure our systems to make allowance for that? Well, there are probably a variety of ways to do that. It wouldn't work the same for every system. But I do think it has to be acknowledged as a foundation stone in ministry that has not been cared for, which means the building, you know, tilts. <laughs> and, and I think it has to start with the way we think about pastors and ministers, the way we teach about it in seminaries uh, that, that, that the part of the movement in the way we teach has to be toward the fact that human beings are what is central, not organizations. Mm. But we're asking an organization to teach that. And so, you know, if you really follow it through, you've got seminaries who are hiding things too, because that's what human beings do. And you want them to teach others how not to hide things. The bottom line is we're all a huge mess. <laughs> and that's why it's a cross. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, I, I think that we, those in positions that can, can do so, really need to think about these things. You know, if I were going to train up five men who were coming out of high school, who think they might want to go to college and seminary and be pastors, what, would, what should it look like? Let's get together and brainstorm with the people who work with the ruins of lives, people who work with others who have done well, because there are those who finish the race well. Mm. You know, what, what are their lives like and how is that different? You have, to, you have to look at both sides. You can't just look at the side that's falling apart. Dr. Langberg, we've got just a, a couple of minutes left before we uh, need to let you go. But um, one of the things I've, I've heard throughout this conversation is you're calling the church to deeply rethink some of the core things that we, we think about as the church. 
So I, I wonder if you could maybe crystallize one or two, just in our conclusion here, of of things that you think the church needs to fundamentally rethink in order to free ourselves from some of the positions that we we find ourselves in today. Yes, I'm going to tell you a brief story before that. Sure. Um, Which I think is in the book. Uh, My father was an Air Force colonel, uh, dropped paratroopers over Normandy, Operation Market Garden, medals, whatever. He was a very, very bright man, um, came back and made a career out of it. He uh, loved Christ. He had to retire at a young age in his 40s uh, because of a neurological disorder and people couldn't figure it out. And he deteriorated basically for 30 plus years. And so this person who was a superb athlete and thinker and everything else couldn't tie his shoes, couldn't pour a glass of water, couldn't get himself up out of the chair, whatever. And somewhere along the way, so I was like 13, and then, you know, 30 plus years after that, I watched him deteriorate. Somewhere in there, I remember watching him try to do something first before he asked for help. And I thought to myself, a body that does not follow its head is a very, very sick body. That's the cornerstone. Wherever we do not look and live like Jesus Christ, we are a very, very sick body. I don't care if you've got 300,000 people in your church. It's not about any of those things. It's obedience to the head. And so then when you ask about what can we, we do, uh, I, I think we've lost him. Fortunately, he hasn't lost us. <laughs> but, but he isn't central to the way we plan these things. We think he is. But he's, not, he's central because we think people should have the right knowledge about him. Or that our denomination has that knowledge and other people don't. Or whatever. This is the way church should be done. This is the way worship should be done. All of those things. But we've lost him and who he is in his character and how he lived among people and how he taught and how he ministered to the least of these, to people that were discarded. You think about something, someone like the Samaritan woman. Today, she'd be yelled at. She'd be discarded. She's trash. So there are many in Christendom that don't look like him at all, but carry his name. And I think part of what we have to do is go back to, or at least start, (laughs) to teach ourselves and the sheep. This is what the shepherd looks like. This is how he treats his sheep. And if we follow him, this is what we will look like. And if we don't look like that, whatever words we use and whatever we think is best, we're not following him. We, we have to pull him out <laughs> as a standalone in the midst of the morass that we have and that we call Christendom. It's, we are a body that is not following our head. 
and we're sick. Well, thank you for uh, sharing <laughs> that your heart. That dismal diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it, it, it's, it's a note to end on, but I don't think that's no, it, it's, I, I was going to say it's it's a convicting word, but it's also a hopeful word. It, and is, it is hopeful. It is an encouraging word. And, I, and that's how I want to take that is – Mm-hmm. Is to say that the body is sick is that is to uh, analyze what has to be analyzed in order for there to grow to health, and so we we have to say these things, we have to hear these things, and I appreciate you, I appreciate your sharing your heart with us and the the work that you've done over decades and how you have learned from that, and you're serving the church and pastors with that, and just very grateful for your time today. Mm-hmm. We we thank you very much for sharing with us. Well, thank you, thank you for having thank me. You. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, Anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, The CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.